you know, anyone who has a driver's license, your face is in a database like that. Or a passport, your face is in a database like that. If you're near a mirror right now, or just turn on your camera and point it at yourself, do me a favor, look at your face, look at your reflection. You probably think of yourself as a parent, maybe a tech worker, a friend, or whatever you might be, a grandparent. Hey, you're listening to this podcast, so maybe you also see yourself as a tech genius in the making. Woohoo! But to big tech companies, you're something else. You're a fat cash cow. I know, I know. It's not exactly a flattering light, but powerful data mining companies can make a ridiculous amount of money by tracking your data. I'm not just talking about your web browsing history. That's nothing. Your location data is really profitable, too. Oh, and don't forget about those shopping lists. That's right. Your buying history is as attractive to data miners as followers are to bees. Here's an example. Your local grocery store probably keeps track of every single thing that you buy. That's because selling your purchase history is a great side hustle for them. In fact, get this, data brokerage is a $200 billion industry. Gosh, where was I 20 years ago? How come I didn't tap into that? Okay, moving on. They make these dollars in a ton of insidious ways. Well, that's probably why I didn't get into it. Now, in case you're wondering who's buying this data, how about the government itself? Yeah, the government conceives your digital data, but it can also buy your secrets from a third party. So even though we have constitutional protections for location information, government agents are apparently exploiting gaps in the law to buy your personal information from brokers. I mean, honestly, buying your privacy data is so routine today. It's just a fact of life. But why does this happen and how come? Well, it's all thanks to the devices that we use every single day. The gadgets that make our life so convenient can also make you incredibly vulnerable. But there are groups pushing back against this, like the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's called EFF for short. They say that we shouldn't accept this endless tracking as the so-called new normal. They don't want anyone to just be able to buy your secrets with just the swipe of a credit card. They would like to establish a basic floor of privacy protections that no one can violate. So today, we're going to speak with one of their experts to break down the craziness of data tracking. You're going to learn everything that companies and the government know about you. And you're also going to learn about how it happens. And boy, I was wondering, I mean, how is this even legal in the first place? Now, of course, we're going to share some cybersecurity tips along the way. And coming up, we're going to be covering a lot of critical stuff, like law enforcement using consumer products to track your front door. More about that. There are also some sneaky services that strong arm you into paying for privacy protections. They think that privacy is a luxury. Personally, I think it's a right, a right that often goes unrecognized. So the bottom line, in today's digital world, everything you do can be spun into some money-making schemes. So coming up in this podcast, you're going to learn a ton about data tracking. We're going to also tell you about how companies are turning you into that cash cow that I mentioned, and also how maybe you can take some of your privacy back. So stay right where you are. Hey, welcome to Kim Commando Explains. I'm Kim Commando, I know, it works, and I'm going to be explaining about all the different ways that we're being tracked. And I'd like to welcome to this episode Bennett Cypers. He's a staff technologist with the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation I told you about. He's here to expose the many ways that we're being tracked. And you'd be surprised about all the different data points that a company can buy about you. So, Bennett, let's start here. Let's go over the different types of data that our devices are collecting. I mean, most people already know that their browsing history and location data is highly sought after. I mean, that's a fact. But are there any other types of data that you think that people would be, like, surprised to learn? Like, they'd say, whoa, wow, you're tracking that too? 
I guess maybe some things that people might not think about are, are connected devices that are not computers and phones. So I think most people are pretty aware, you know, when you're browsing the web or using apps on your smartphone, that that data is being collected. That's a good point. And this is why you should check your list of connected devices every now and then. You might find out that a stranger's device just kind of slipped through those cracks and no one wants a random untrustworthy device to just mooch off your network. So every few months, Check out your router to make sure that strangers aren't hitchhiking on your network. Uh, Later on, Bennett and I are going to go into more detail about the security risks. I'm also going to give you the steps for checking your connected devices. So let's just put a pin in that right now. I want to talk about some other devices that we need to look out for. Bennett, what else is putting us all at risk? There are so many devices that have computers in them now that act basically the same way. like smart TVs, um, you know, game consoles, uh, most vehicles that are being produced now um, have some kind of entertainment center in them, and they might, you know, have a navigation service that collects information about your location and transmits that. Absolutely. And that can be kind of mind-bending to so many people. Cars are supposed to be what? This symbol of freedom, the independence. But they can also be a tool of surveillance because they're just loaded with computers. And also, we have all these seemingly innocent gadgets that are now being used for surveillance. And that includes front doorbell cameras like Nest and Ring, right? Even things like, you know, Ring doorbells or, uh, you know, Nest thermostats, that kind of a thing is also collecting a bunch of data about you. Um, So just like, you know, anything that has any sort of smart functionality is probably collecting something about you. And um, one of the things about this, the industry of, you know, like data brokers and data exploitation is that um, it tends to flourish in the space where people aren't looking. And so like, uh, (laughs) you know, you'll, you'll see a lot of times, the only times you see reform is after some kind of big public outcry. And so like the, the devices that people are less likely to think about and pay attention to are often the ones that are most likely to um, kind of abuse your trust. And I want to repeat that. So often the devices that you think about the least are often the most likely to abuse our trust. And what device comes to mind when you hear that? Your Roomba, your gaming console, maybe something out of left field, like your smart smoothie maker, your smart crock pot. Now, anyone who knows me will tell you that I'm a total car gal. I am. I love cars. I think the designs are phenomenal and the power and the sounds. I'm definitely not looking forward to having an EV world. But when we spoke about the devices that we don't suspect, my mind immediately went to cars, specifically car sensors. Most people probably know that our cars just have tons of sensors inside and out. What you might not know is that our very own seats have sensors. That's right, the seat that you sit on. Some cars can tell when you've actually gained weight. Their sensors note the subtle differences in weight. It's kind of like spandex and dark clothes can fool some people that maybe you've lost some weight, but your very own ride can tell you when you've had too much fun at the family barbecue. So, Bennett, are there any other weird off-the-wall ways that we're being tracked? Um, Cars are a good one. I think just because, you know, there are so many sensors in cars, right? Like there's um, especially new ones that are equipped with any kind of like lane assist or like, um, you know, this, this sort of smart driving functionality. Um, they have cameras everywhere. There's sometimes there are cameras inside the cabin. There's usually cameras like outside the cabin pointed all around you. Um, as you said, like there's the weight sensors. There's like just all the information about how you drive, like 
when you accelerate, when you brake, um, whether your seatbelt is latched, that kind of thing can all be collected and shared and sometimes sold. Yeah, that's right. If you're listening while you're driving, I hope you're not speeding. And if you're in a newer car, it might snitch on you. Actually, this is a risk with all sorts of devices, isn't it? But yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> I don't know. There's all kinds of, it's kind of just like pick a, pick a direction and start looking and eventually you'll find something that might surprise you. Yeah, that's right. I'm always surprised about how many different things are being tracked. And that number always comes into play that, that we're probably being tracked and we have different data points to the tune of like 25,000 different data points about us that somebody has tracked online. But are there any data types that are the most, say, attractive to companies? What are data brokers selling the most? I mean, I'm wondering if location data is the most highly sought after or web browsing data is still the, well, I guess you'd say tastiest cookie, so to speak. That is a good question. Um, I think it, it really depends on the industry and like who's who's buying. Um, location data has gotten a lot of attention recently, uh, and I think that is, you know, really attractive for a lot of different buyers that you might be concerned about. Um, like I think governments are really interested in location data um, for a lot of different reasons. You know, you have things on the more mundane side, like you know, doing large scale studies into like energy usage or transportation or that kind of thing. And then you'll also have like, you know, immigration agencies and law enforcement and the military buying location data so they can, you know, track people's individual movements. It's creepy. A big company can pay so much money to find out where you've been. It's like professional stalking. I can't help but think of that old police song. So Bennett, it sounds like location data is one of the most desirable types of data. What else are companies interested in? Um, Companies are interested generally in whatever helps you, uh, whatever helps them target ads. <laughs> that's like, that's what it comes down to. And so purchase data is another really big one. Um, so like anyone who has data about, you know, what people are, have bought or are interested in buying, um, that, that can be really lucrative. So like the biggest data brokers in the country usually build their business around that. Like Axiom is probably the biggest and most well-known like data broker in the world. And they, they're, big product is like a, it started out as just like a, a marketing database. Like what are people interested in buying? And it's, it's sort of grown and expanded past that. Yeah. If you have not heard of Axiom, allow me to introduce you to them. This company was hailed by the New York Times as quote, the quiet giant of consumer database marketing. It knows who you are, where you live and what you do. It takes a closer look into your personal life than even the FBI or the IRS. Heck, even Facebook and Google don't know that much about you. If you're an American adult, Axiom probably knows your weight, your height, race, age, and sex. But that's really just the surface. It also collects data on your educational level, buying habits, vacation goals, household income, and your politics. It probably knows more about you than... Say your sister or brother, mom or dad or grandparents, next door neighbors, or certainly your coworkers. It's pretty creepy. And it's so-called quiet data collection, that's what it's called, has served Axiom really well. Analysts say it has the world's largest commercial database on consumers, like you and me. It has data on about 500 million active consumers worldwide. And the majority comes from American adults. So you better believe that you have a profile with this company. Yes, lucky you. So take a moment to think about your most recent purchases. Now take into consideration this fact. Axiom servers process more than 50 trillion data transactions a year. Oh, wow. 50 trillion data transactions a year. 
I'm willing to bet they know at least hmm, a few of your recent credit card splurges and maybe some things that you purchased online that uh, you'd rather not have anybody else find out. And how exactly does Axiom collect that data? That's a good question. I wish I knew a complete answer to that. Um, you know, I, I think they get it from all over. Like they don't they don't really talk about this. This is they would probably say this is their secret sauce. But, you know, yeah, I think a lot of it comes directly or indirectly from like apps and browsing and that kind of like, you know, the stuff that you would think about being tracked. Um, they get a lot of data from the government, just like places like, you know, DMVs um, and like records of, um, you know, loans or housing or like you know, post office stuff. Um, uh, so like they can know where you live and, and uh, how much money you might make and um, use sort of big financial data like that. Um, and yeah, just buying it from other sort of more focused data brokers, I think is probably a big part of it. Um, like there will be, you know, there are often data brokers that focus really specifically on one you know, pipeline. Um, mm -hmm. So like there might be a, a smart TV data broker that just collects data about what shows people watch um, and then sells that sort of up the chain to these aggregating data brokers that will try and assemble all of that data into a profile. And of course, Axiom isn't just the only one. It's just the biggest name. There are a ton of fish in this data collection sea. Um, but yeah, so like anything, you know, credit card companies have a lot of data about the things that you buy, obviously. And so that's that's a, another like lucrative data stream that people might, might not think about as much. That's right. Your purchases aren't nearly as private as you might think. Well, depending on your credit cards. While we're on the topic of credit cards, I want to throw a quick security tip your way. Now, I don't recommend using your credit card when you're shopping online. You're better off using a middleman between you and the merchant. You know, I'm thinking like PayPal, Venmo, and Zelle. Or, for example, prepaid cards. It's a great choice, too. You can use Amazon Cash or Shopify's Shop Pay option, which protects your card when you're buying with merchants. Now, of course, buying through your smartphone is really risky. Phones are just a lot easier to break into than computers. And that's why you should use Apple Pay, Google Pay, or Samsung Pay. It's really easy to set up and use. And then all you need to do is just scan your credit or debit card. And it is way, way, way more secure than just using your credit card. Now, I'm also going to bet that you're wondering which devices put you at the most risk. Is it your smartphone? Is it your laptop? Is it your Roomba that's collecting dirt on you? When it comes to surveillance, you just never know. Coming up next, Bennett and I will break down the biggest privacy busters. You're going to get an insider strategy for kicking off the strange devices just mooching off of your private network. And we're going to be dropping some bombshells. Okay, here's a preview. You don't own your face. That's right. You're also going to learn that you don't own your face in many other ways. You've heard me correctly. It's facial recognition technology, of course. Your face is practically public property. And after this podcast, you're going to know why and how this is even possible. So stay right where you are with us. Hey, welcome back to Kim Commando Explains. We've already spoken about the many different types of data tracking. We're going to take a closer look right now at the tech side of things. Which devices track us the most? Is there an especially big invader that stands out compared to the other gadgets we use each day? My guess are smartphones collected the most data. That's what I'm saying. Am I right, Bennett? 
I think smartphones are probably that device for most people. Yeah, because just because we spend so much time on our phones and do so many different things on our phones. And so it's sort of a catch-all catch all device. Um, I mean, yeah, computers as well. Um, you know, if you spend most of your time in a, in a browsing window like I do on, on, on a laptop, then, um, you know, there's, there's a bunch of information probably being collected about you that way, unless, you know, take a lot of precautions and, and use things like tracker blockers, um, and that sort of technology. Yeah, a lot of this does depend on individual users. We all have our unique habits. Maybe you're listening to this now and thinking, well, I don't use my smartphone that often, but I'm on my laptop, geez, all the time. Maybe that means my laptop is collecting the most data. I'd like to get your thoughts on this one, Bennett. Are the devices we use the most are they the ones that collect most of our data? Probably, um, although I would say what you should be worried about probably isn't the volume, but like the sensitivity of it. So just like think about the devices where, you know, where the most important parts of your life flow through. Um, so like your game console, you know, they might collect a lot of data about what games you play and what you watch on Netflix, but you know, that might not be as sensitive as like every once in a while you drive somewhere and that location data, even though it's it's less, um, there's less raw data, it might be more sensitive and more valuable and more important uh, for you to worry about. Right, that's a really great point. I mean, you might have a drone you use all the time, but if you spend a few minutes on your computer taking care of sensitive business, clearly your smartphone is putting you at a greater risk. So it's focused on quality over quantity. I mean, what are you doing on each gadget? Which one is the most privy to all your private information? And it's really important to get ironclad protection in place. A, a single vulnerability could put you in huge danger. I think there are some devices we look at with more suspicion than others. Take Alexa and the smart home assistants. For example, as fun as it is to joke around with Alexa, I think a lot of us look at our Amazon Echoes with a fair amount of skepticism. We know that she's listening to a lot more than what she should. Yeah, Amazon always says, oh, she's only listening for the wake word. She's never listening. Well, if she's always listening to the wake word, um, I think she's always listening. But I wonder if there are some other devices that slip under the radar that don't get as much publicity when we start talking about privacy. So, Bennett, can you shed some light on this for us? Are there any gadgets that you think, in your experience, people would be surprised to learn that are collecting a whole bunch of data on us? Say, like, maybe it's our blenders, or maybe it is our Roombas. Jeez, <laughs> uh, yeah. Let me think. Um, I mean, I've, I've heard of, like, smart outlets being a culprit, potentially. Um, like, one, one problem can be, like, anything that you let on your Wi-Fi network potentially has a lot of information about you. Um, or a bigger risk can be that, you know, if you put something on your Wi-Fi network, and it's not secure, um, that can be a vector by which, you know, people might be able to get into your network and get other information. That's that's more of a, that's not so much in the like surveillance economy, that's more of like a, a, a security risk kind of a thing. Um, but, you know, just like a lot of smart devices um, that might only do like one extremely specific task, like, you know, turn on and off a light, um, might, you know, have access to, uh, much more data than that um, and, you know, could be vectors by which other people could, you know, get in and exploit, um, exploit your network or, um, you know, collect other information about you. 
Oh, absolutely. If you use wireless internet at home, you probably have a tiny army of devices plugged into your network. That makes it easy for unwelcome devices to just slip in right under your nose. That's why you need to check your list of connected devices every now and then. This way you can catch any strange gadget that's just taking all your data. Not only is it annoying to see that someone's using your network, but it's dangerous. These uninvited devices can put you at great risk. They could be the doorway for a virus that takes down your whole system. But luckily, I have your back. Do you have a pen, notepad ready, or maybe you just want to put this into your phone? I'm about to share a few steps you can take to protect yourself. Every few months, you should look over the devices that are attached to your network. You can do this really easily. First, just type your computer's IP address into your browser's address bar, and that takes you directly into your router's menu. So you want to log in with your router's username and password. Click on the connected devices list. Now you can get a good overview of your network's activity. Here you can spot any strange devices. If you see something you don't recognize, change your Wi-Fi password. Then reconnect the devices you trust and you want. This can be a pretty lengthy process, but it is worth it. Think of the time that you're spending as an investment in your safety. If you don't look over your connected devices, you could be welcoming in some dangerous stuff. And like I said, they can leave your network vulnerable to all sorts of threats, including data mining. Now, let's take a second. We're going to switch gears a little bit, and we're going to look at a gadget that makes a lot of security experts just sweat. Video doorbells, you know, those cameras you attach to your front door to see who's standing on your porch. It's a fabulous invention. It's a great way to stay safe and see what's going on in your front lawn. But some folks are afraid of these potential privacy invasions, and for good reason. Did you know the footage your front door captures could help detectives solve criminal cases? As of February, Ring partnered with over 2,000 police and fire departments across the country. So as you can imagine, a lot of people love it but a lot of people see it as a threat to your privacy. But some good news. You don't have to worry about the police knocking on your front door demanding your footage. If they want the footage from your video doorbell, they need a warrant, and they'll always ask if they need it first, so you won't be taken by surprise. Even though these partnerships make a lot of privacy advocates hot under the collar, and I guess for good reason. Uh, Bennett, let's loop around to this. I imagine that some people might poo-poo this story. They might think, well, you know, I don't have a video doorbell, so I don't have to even worry about this. What would you say to them? Does the issue stretch far beyond just ring users, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the bigger issue actually is that ring devices collect information about public spaces. So, you know, if when someone, when your neighbor installs a smart doorbell and that uh, the, the camera on that doorbell is pointed out onto your street and like, you know, towards you and, and the other people in your neighborhood. Um, data is being collected about you, whether or not, you know, you're, you're using the ring doorbell or even whether you visit your, your neighbor or not. Um, Think about it this way. Even if you don't have a video doorbell camera, if your neighbor does, they have footage of you running past their house for your morning jog. Say there's a crime in the neighborhood. Your neighbor turns in their footage to police. The department might want to subpoena you and question you about your jogging route. They might wonder if you could have been a witness to a crime or a suspect. Who knows? But that's just a worst-case scenario playing on my head. Bennett, what are your thoughts? And so I think uh, a big part of what police, the potential the police see in devices like Ring is, you know, the ability to sort of... um, privatize like uh, 
security cameras and and surveillance of the public square um, by getting you know people to individually install these devices. So like the, the the risk with Ring isn't that you know, I mean there is there you might be concerned about what Ring is going to do with your data when you install that device, but like I think a bigger concern for society is like once there are Ring devices on you know. A significant portion of everyone's homes. Like if, if you have like 20 or 30 or 50 percent of people in a neighborhood uh, with ring devices installed, you know, that's like hundreds or thousands of different cameras pointed at, you know, all over the neighborhood collecting uh, video of pretty much everything that goes on in that neighborhood. And then um, if police want, you know, to go back and surveil what was happening in that neighborhood at any given time and at any given place, they just have to find, you know, the person or people whose rings were recording that data and be like, Hey, is it okay if, you know, we take that footage. Um, and the more people who are surveilling it, the easier it is, um, for police to, you know, go back in time and see exactly what was happening at any given place anywhere. Um, whether or not the police had set up their own, you know, surveillance equipment ahead of time. Right. Now I'm speaking of surveillance. So let's talk about facial recognition software. When you're shopping for security cameras to set up around your house, you might spot some pricier cameras that can recognize faces that are just passing by. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, no, any, any, I mean, these days, any video monitoring equipment is like just facial recognition system waiting to happen. Um, you know, you like, you can take any historic footage or any, any kind of like live data and just like slap on a facial recognition layer and, you know, identify and track the people who are who are implicated in that footage. Would it be accurate to say that most of our faces are in some database? Or is facial recognition technology just not that widespread? Well, yet. Um, I think most probably, yeah. You know, like I think, um, you know, unfortunately, so there's, there's, there's two kind of big sources for uh, facial recognition facial recognition systems to draw on. The first are government databases. Um, it's like we were talking about like um, DMV databases. Uh, most DMVs in the country sell data in one way or another. Like there are ways for um, for you to, you know, purchase big, big swaths of records. And those can include like, you know, um, uh, the, you know, the faces that were, the face shots that were taken for, for licenses and that kind of thing. And obviously, you know, the government already has access to that data because it's the government. Um, so, you know, anyone who has a driver's license, your face is in a database like that or a passport, same thing, your face is in a database like that. That's right. It's a weird thing to think about, but you don't really own your face. Even if you were to run away from civilization, get off the grid and fall asleep to the song of crickets every night you still wouldn't be able to wipe away all traces of yourself. There's just no way to be 100% invisible today because your face is already in a government database. Heck, even if you don't have a driver's license or a passport, you could still be in a database. Have you ever uploaded a selfie to social media? Have you ever been tagged in social media? Then you might be in Clearview AI's database. That's right, facial recognition programs use government sources. We get that. But they also use social media. So, Bennett, tell us more about that. Um, the second big source is social media. And like any any time, any site where you upload a face shot, um, like Facebook is probably the biggest one. Um, but, you know, even Twitter or Instagram or anything else where you might 
upload a picture of your face and make that publicly available. Um, uh, there are companies like Clearview is is a big one that will you know just crawl those sites, collect um, all the public faces that they can, and you know most of the time one of those faces will be associated with a name or at least a username on that site, um, and then put that into a big database. And then when they see you know then they can take raw video footage and compare it against like everyone who has a public Facebook photo um, and try and make a match. Okay, I saw a headline that said a stranger could use Clearview AI to find your address just by taking a picture of your face. Is that right? Um, I'm, I don't think that's the case for everyone. Um, it's Again, it's just a matter of like, you know, what data Clearview is able to gather about you. I think it's probably pretty likely that for a very significant portion of, of you know, people in the U.S., Maybe most people in the U.S. Clearview is able to get, you know, a face shot, a name, and a home address um, for those people. And then once you have those three things, you know, it's it's trivial for them to to take video footage, figure out, you know, whose face is in the video, and then um, try and link that to to the name and address. Although I, I want to say I'm giving Clearview a lot of credit for their technology right now, uh, which really isn't warranted. Like facial recognition. You know, it works a lot of the time, probably most of the time for most people, but there are really significant issues with with accuracy and um, with biases in uh, how that accuracy is applied, you know, across across demographics. Yeah, absolutely. This tech is great at tracking down white people's faces, but it does make mistakes when it's looking at people of color. Earlier this summer, a teenager went to a skating rink in Detroit. Security threw her out. They said, hey, we recognize you. The last time you were here, you got into a fight. Now, in reality, she had never been there before. The problem came down to the security cameras, which mistook her for another girl who had gotten banned. Suffice to say, the tech has a long way to go. Yeah, so like, I think there's a very good chance that, going back to your original question, that Clearview can claim that they know who a person is in a, in a given, you know, piece of video footage and where they live. Um, whether or not that's accurate, you know, it, it depends on a lot of different factors. That's actually kind of scary. I mean, you can be minding your own business walking around and the police might show up at your driveway with handcuffs. That happened to one man who had been falsely matched with a local burglar. That's how widespread tracking is. It's odd to think of your face as a piece of data, but to a government database, well, that could be all you are. You know, there are a lot of like data sharing centers between different um, different branches of government and different law enforcement agencies. So, you know, if like the DMV has has your face, then they might be sharing it depending on your state and their policies. They might be sharing, you know, information about all the information that's on your driver's license with law enforcement just, you know, for free, just because. Um, uh, but yeah, anything that's like available on the public web, again, is going to be collected. And you have to assume that's going to be collected and, and looked at by law enforcement. So, you know, public profile photos, uh, publicly posted photos on Instagram or Twitter. Um, there are like software tools that um, are actually marketed towards law enforcement that will scrape, you know, tons and tons of data from social media sites and then like process it and present it to law enforcement um, like to, to, to condense that and help them, you know, follow people's movements around without actually getting a warrant. 
You heard it here, folks. Be careful about what you put on your social media page. Your friends and family are following it, yeah. But you can also expect to see a few secret admirers. Well, wearing a police uniform, that is. So we've talked about how your devices track your data. You know how profitable your secrets are, but how is this even possible in the first place? How does this invasive tech, I guess we'd say, just slip past our radar and into our homes without us even noticing it? Well, coming up next, Bennett and I are busting some myths. We're going to talk about how tech companies try to get our guard down, and you're going to learn about some warning signs to look out for. So stay right where you are with us. We have to say just a few thank yous to our partners on this podcast. Hey, welcome back. This episode is so fascinating to me because it's really putting a spotlight on something that we don't think about very often. We always consider our gadgets to be our little helpers. We never think of them as actual spies, but we often hear about new ways that gadgets are watching over us. So let me go back to just one of my favorite topics. Yes, cars. You won't believe this. You may have to prove to your next car that you're not drunk before you can drive it. It's all part of this gigantic $2 trillion infrastructure bill that politicians are arguing about. Well, deep within the 2,700 pages, wow, imagine reading that. That's probably why nobody does. Anyway, you're going to find a requirement that all manufacturers equip new cars with what they're saying, an alcohol detection system. That's right. If your car detects alcohol, it's not going to start. Well, mothers against drunk driving are really the ones behind this. That's what I heard. Personally, I don't think it's a good idea. Why do I have to breathe into something to prove that I'm not drunk to drive my car? It does sound great in theory. Maybe we'll save some lives. But take a moment to think about the long-term consequences. Some people think that this tech does sound invasive. Even if you always drive sober, you're going to have to prove that you're not drunk. Even if you haven't poured a drink in years, your car will still treat you as guilty until proven innocent. This got me thinking. It seems that a lot of invasive gadgets initially present themselves as safety tools. That's how they get past our radar. We think, hey, what a great thing. And then we're so starstruck by everything that it can do. We don't stop to think about how it might be harming our security and our privacy. What do you think, Bennett? Is this how maybe a lot of invasive devices just fly under the radar? Yeah, I would say, I would say that's a really common phenomenon. I hadn't heard about the breathalyzer car. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think most, most invasive tech is initially sold in like the most um, anodyne way that they can, you know, imagine like the, the most, like, you know, for a, a lot of uh, um, new surveillance technology is pitched to, you know, lawmakers and the public uh, in the context of like the most egregious kind of crimes. Um, so it's like, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a case where the FBI wanted to force Apple to unlock someone's iPhone, which was something that they had never done before. Um, and this was around uh, a terrorist attack. And so it was, um, you know, they were, they were trying to catch terrorists. And so they, they were like, we really need this data so that we can catch this terrorist. But, you know, once they get Apple to do that once there's, there's going to be legal precedent for, being able to force Apple to do that. And then they can start calling in that same kind of, um, you know, action from Apple on, on all kinds of different cases. Um, you know, you see the same thing around like, um, 
child sexual abuse, which is, you know, awful, 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 like the worst thing in the world. And everyone kind of agrees on that. Um, and so, but the government will use that to, you know, say like, all right, these are the people we're going after. And this is why we need this new technology. Um, and then once they kind of get their foot in the door by, you know, using this technology in the most egregious cases, uh, very frequently we'll see that that expand to like all kinds of more mundane, um, you know, like chasing down drug crimes and like, um, you know, just more mundane law enforcement activity. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah, that's that's very common, unfortunately. Now, speaking of unfortunate things, I want to talk about a sneaky trick a lot of companies will play on their customers. Specifically, if you want a security feature, it's locked behind a paywall. I know the EFF is pretty passionate about this. Yeah, so this is a, a big thing that we've been, uh, EFF has been um, uh, trying to do activism around is is what we call pay for privacy. This, this phenomenon of um, uh, conditioning certain services or discounts or anything like that um, on your quote unquote consent uh, to invasive tracking. Um, and so this is, this has really uh, come into the public discussion um, in the past few years as like, uh, as we've started to get some kind of privacy laws. So like, you know, five, 10 years ago, it was more sort of the wild west around data protection where like there weren't really any laws governing anything. <laughs> and so, you know, companies could just take what they wanted and you didn't have any say. Um, and now, uh, I think the big thing was in 2018, GDPR, the General Data Privacy Regulation in Europe, uh, went into effect. And so uh, companies that operate in Europe have to ask consent for a lot of different things. And there have been a couple laws that have been passed in the States um, that are kind of in the same vein, where it's like conditioned on, you know, all right, companies can do whatever they want as long as they ask you first, or as long as they give you the option to opt out of that thing. Um, and so what companies are doing are saying like, all right, yeah, sure, we'll give you the option. But, you know, uh, if you say no, then we can't give you any of the good services that you actually want. Or, you know, we're going to charge you twice as much or we won't give you this, uh, you know, really juicy discount. And so we think that that is antithetical to the idea of privacy as a right. You know, rights can't be sold or um, or, uh, you know, coaxed out of you. Um, you should have an absolute right to say, no, don't collect my information and not have your service degraded um, or not be punished for trying to exercise that right. It sounds dastardly when you think about it. Tech companies can use some pretty underhanded tactics. But I want to talk about data brokers. I want to go back there. I, I feel like most of us don't even know that the government can buy our private information from data brokers. I mean, if you tell this to people, I mean, they're going to be like, What? How is this even legal, Bennett? Yeah. Um, so first of all, EFF does not think that it is legal. There's, this is not settled law, which is part of the problem. Um, you know, there hasn't really been a big court case that has decided, yes, the government can buy this data or no, they're not allowed to buy this data without a warrant. Um, and so it's, it's a legal gray area, but governments are doing it anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, what the reason they can do it is that no one is stopping them is that, you know, there are, there are data brokers that collect very sensitive information, including browsing history, including, you know, location history, all that kind of stuff. And they will sell it to pretty much anyone on the open market. And so it's kind of, you know, and then on the other side, you have 
law enforcement, militaries, um, all kinds of government agencies that, you know, are trying to track people, are trying to find out what people are doing. Um, they can get that information with a warrant, but it's a big hassle and they have to, you know, do a lot of work ahead of time before they can get a warrant. And so naturally they are looking for ways that they can get that information that might help them build a case or, you know, help them uh, surveil people en masse uh, more easily. And, you know, you have this, this demand and this supply and eventually they meet and uh, no one is really stopping them right now. So uh, yeah, that's, that's why it happens. Obviously the government knows a ton about us. So let's dive a little deeper. Is there anything the government knows about us that you think people would be shocked about? Hmm. <laughs> this is a little tough because I've been in this space for a long time. And so not, not that much shocks me anymore. Um, um, I guess just the extent of the public private partnerships and the amount of data that's collected for like mundane purposes, um, I think is, is kind of interesting. Like, you know, it's not just the police or the NSA who's trying to surveil you. It's like, there's all kinds of like smaller civic government agencies that also just buy, you know, very sensitive data in bulk because that data is cheap and it might help them do, you know, like a transportation planning is the big one that we've been looking at where it's kind of like, you know, no one really pays attention to those agencies. Um, but there's all kinds of location data that's being, you know, collected by cell phones or connected vehicles and then bought in bulk, um, by like random transportation agencies because they're like, oh, we want to know like why there's so much traffic on Fifth Avenue. Um, and in order to accomplish that, they buy, you know, a record of where everyone in the city went for the past two years. That's a lot of data that they're collecting about Fifth Avenue in New York City. But it probably helps their business. It's like, what? Like that is so disproportionate and unnecessary and potentially dangerous. Um, but you know, there's, there's not very much that's, uh, governing, uh, the flows of those data right now. And so it, it, it ends up happening anyway. Yeah. I don't think a lot of us are even aware that this is happening, but there's a even scarier aspect to all this. Let's talk about hacking. Do you guys remember that huge government hack that we saw last year? Uh, if not, here's a quick recap. In 2020, a massive cyber attack hit the U.S. government. Hackers invaded many government branches, from the Postal Service to the Department of Homeland Security. Something even scarier, they also wormed their way into the National Nuclear Security Administration. Yeah, that's bad. So, Bennett, when the government has all this highly sensitive data on us, and it's notoriously easy to hack, potentially anyone could access our entire digital life, right? I mean, all those data points. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, it's like a lot of places, you know, these are small government agencies that have, you know, their, their mission statement is not to store sensitive info on millions of people. Their mission statement is like transportation planning or something. And, you know, we've seen big government agencies have, have really costly and really, um, you know, consequential uh, hacks over the past few years. And so, yeah, I think it's, it is very dangerous to, to let, uh, huge tranches of sensitive info like this, you know, just be kind of spread around to all these different actors and all these different targets. Um, and I think eventually, sooner or later, one of them is going to get hacked and it's, it's going to be a watershed moment, unfortunately. 
it's always better to be aware than to be taken by surprise. So, gosh, there you have it. We're being tracked in all sorts of ways by all sorts of people. It's incredibly comprehensive, isn't it? I mean, if you feel overwhelmed by all this information, um, maybe we should look on the bright side. You're so valuable. You're so important that big agencies are going to spend millions just to find out what you bought and where you've been. That's got to be worth something, right? Hey, Bennett, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Um, you just really did a, an amazing job. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks so much for the conversation. Now, do me a huge favor. Don't forget, you know what I need you to do to rate, review, subscribe, and follow this podcast and share it out with your social media friends. We're always looking for more great people to tap into our whole commando family. You're one of them. And so spread the word. And speaking of, if you're not already getting thecurrentnewsletter.com, that's right, thecurrentnewsletter.com, if you're not getting that, it's tech news delivered only twice a week. And you can join nearly 100,000 folks who get the newsletter, The Current. And you can sign up right now and see samples over at thecurrentnewsletter.com. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about this podcast, you can always send them to me, podcast at commando.com. That's with a K, of course. Thanks for listening.